live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you for another brilliant series on printing. Extremely well received. Very positive feedback. Many people have written that a lot of the stuff you said they had absolutely no idea about, which is the usual case, but specifically with this printing. So we're back with a brand new series. And this is a timely uh, series with the upheaval of the government and a new prime minister every week. And we might have to keep this going as we catch up with uh, current prime ministers. Right. Well, they have to be historical. So, you know, I don't think 44 days really counts. So your grandchildren will be doing our current day. Exactly. But uh, yes, given the recent turmoil in Britain's parliament, uh, three prime ministers within seven weeks, which is unheard of even in wartime Britain, and the fact that the institution of there being a prime minister in the UK is now exactly 300 years old, it is relevant to cover some of the relationships with Jews through the centuries. And I believe this podcast will contain surprises about some of these people. I definitely came across one in particular, a prime minister who didn't turn out as everyone thinks. But there are a couple of unexpected turns. So you mentioned that prime ministers in the UK only happened 300 years ago. Mm -hmm. What suddenly happened? Well, the whole institution of Parliament went through all the upheavals with Oliver Cromwell and with them dropping the head of a king and constitutional monarchy. So as the royal family became less relevant, then the prime ministers became... It's not say that the royal family became less relevant, but the Parliament became more relevant. That's the way I would put it, at least until 1900. Right. So I'm not going to cover the more recent prime ministers, such as Margaret Thatcher or Tony Blair, whose anyway personal connection to Jews is well known. Uh, They both raised a chief rabbi to the House of Lords and consulted with them whilst in office. And in fact, Thatcher was the first prime minister to visit Israel whilst in office. But they're too recent to qualify. So we will move further back and start with the most famous of the 20th century, Winston Churchill. And he was known as a friend of the Jews. So Sir Martin Gilbert authored a book on this topic. And when he began to collect material, he spent the day with General Sir Edward Louis Spears, a long-standing friend of Churchill. And Spears urged him to paint a true portrait, you know, warts and all of the of the great man, as he was known. And he said, you know, even Winston had a fault. He was too fond of the Jews. So, yes, we can expect to hear about this, but by no means is it constant. And Sir Martin Gilbert's book alone is 400 pages. There are other books on the topic, and it's also the subject of numerous articles. So I will focus on some of the important and or volatile parts. Church's first political involvement is in 1904. He is 27. The 
conservative constituency in Oldham told him that they would no longer support him. So he accepts an invitation to stand for Manchester Northwest for the Liberals. And one third of the electorate there was Jewish. And he was asked by them to lobby against the Conservative government's Aliens Bill, which was aimed at limiting Jewish immigrants from Tsarist Russia, who were fleeing persecution. And Churchill took up the challenge. He spoke up, um, saying that the whole bill was an attempt by the government to buy popularity by dealing harshly with immigrants who had no vote, and it was racial prejudice. So the House of Commons tries to pass the bill anyway, and Churchill changes tactics. The bill had 11 clauses and 240 lines. And since he was part of the parliamentary committee, because there are always opposition members of parliament at committee stage, he challenged each clause. And by the end of the seventh day of their deliberations, they had only gone through 10 of the 240 <laughs> lines. So then the government just gave up. Yeah, basically, the, the government abandoned the bill. Let's move forward to January 1919. Churchill was appointed Secretary of State for War and becomes responsible for the military who ruled Palestine. Now, many, if not most, of the British officers in that administration were not only anti-Zionist, they were anti-Semitic. Some of them had served with the British military mission in Russia and apparently had brought copies of the anti-Semitic protocols of the elders of Zion with them to Palestine. And the commanding officers in Palestine frequently asked Whitehall to cancel the Balfour Declaration. And they actually never permitted the publication of that document in the Palestine press, even though it was official government policy and it'd been published in the British press and around the world. Um, so that was the situation that he inherited. But Churchill was famous for his outspoken support of the Balfour Declaration of Zionism. And as a government minister, he outlined his policy on Jewish immigration, insisting that the door to immigration be kept open. So when Churchill receives the Palestinian Arab delegation in 1921... Uh, they demand that the British government reject the Balfour Declaration and halt all further Jewish immigration to Palestine. Churchill refuses to do either. He told them that the Jews are a people who are scattered all over the world, and Palestine is a country with which they have a strong historic tradition, and that they were there many hundreds of years ago, and they've always tried to be there, and that's the way it's going to be. It's very outspoken, very strong point. I guess it's unlikely to have been the UK policy in the government. Well, at no point almost were Churchill's sympathies to Zionist aspirations shared by the majority of the cabinet. So, yes, this was quite a strong position to be taking. And he maintained a very pro-Jewish approach throughout the 20s and 30s. In fact, in 1952, so this is on the fourth anniversary of the founding of the State of Israel, he sent a telegram in which he described himself as a Zionist from the days of the Balfour Declaration. 
although he still did have one fear about Palestine based on his views of international politics, and that was communist infiltration, in this case into the Zionist movement. And he said, I quote, we cannot have a country inundated by Bolshevist riffraff who would subvert institutions in Palestine as they have done with success in the land from which they came. So, you know, there was that caveat. Now, beyond his views on Palestine, he was at times so closely identified with Jews that he was accused publicly of supporting them with government money and policy. And it came about in the following way. So in, in the general election of 1922, Churchill lost his parliamentary seat, which at the time was in Dundee. And whenever he tries to get back to Parliament to find a seat, he is accused of having illegally helped wealthy Jews make money, which arose from a lecture that was given by Lord Alfred Douglas throughout Britain. And he alleged that immediately after the Battle of Jutland in 1916, as part of a plot engineered by wealthy British Jews, the Admiralty reported that the battle had been a heavy setback for Britain, as a result of which British stocks plummeted on the New York Stock Exchange, and the Jewish conspirators bought all these stocks at a knockdown price, and then it became known that the battle had been of British victory, so the stock shot up and Jews profited illegally, and this was the accusation. And eventually matters came to trial, in fact, to a government trial in 1923, and during cross-examination, the barrister asked Lord Douglas... Do you mean to say that Churchill was financially indebted to the Jews? And Douglas says, yes, absolutely. And Churchill makes it very clear that he never made a single penny from anything that happened. I mean, it's quite an easy claim to make. The stocks must have moved down and then gone up. Yes, they must have done. But what he said is it has nothing to do with him or government manipulation. He made not a penny from it. And in fact, the jury took eight minutes to reach their verdict. Douglas was found guilty and he was sentenced to six months in prison. Oh, that settled it. But Churchill was identified with the Jews to that degree. How about personally? Did he have a personal relationship with the Jews? Yeah, a number of them. I mean, some of the Rothschilds, in fact, even in the earlier years of his career, although the closest to home, I guess, quite literally, was in the mid-1930s. There was an Austrian-born Jewish actor, a radio comedian, a pianist, known by his stage name, which was Vic Oliver, who eloped with Churchill's 22-year-old daughter, Sarah. Um, now, Churchill didn't take to him at first, um, especially as he was eloping with his daughter, who was 16 years younger than Vic Oliver. Uh, he eventually warmed up, and the pair were together for 10 years, although Vic Oliver never used his connection to the Prime Minister for personal gain. But he did, this Oliver did make history by being the first ever guest on Desert Island Discs 
1942, the very first, which for Brits is an absolute icon. For the rest of you around the world, look it up. It's still <laughs> going 80 years later. So, yes, he did have personal relationships with Jews. Obviously, you need to tell us a bit about Churchill's involvement with the war. Until now, we actually have not dealt with Churchill, the prime minister. Right. The minister more. So before Nazi Germany decided in 1941 to adopt, so to speak, the policy of exterminating all the Jews of Europe, it tried to reduce Jewish numbers by emigration. And Jewish organizations, especially the Central Office for Jewish Immigration, were allowed at times and for the right price to send Jews out, often to Palestine, because the Nazi authorities saw this as an opportunity to get rich and get rid of the Jews and to make trouble for Britain by sending Jews to Palestine who didn't have immigration certificates. In 1940, Eichmann allowed the passage of three ships from Romania, which set sail, arrived in Haifa in November 1940. Each of the ships was intercepted by the Royal Navy, and there were a total of 3,600 Jews. The passengers were then to be transferred to a fourth ship, the Patria, to be taken to the British Indian Ocean island of Mauritius, where they would be interned by the British. For what crime? You mean, why would they be interned? Yeah. Well, in 1939, the British government issued a white paper that cut down radically on allowing Jews into Palestine, and anyone trying to get in would be deported, basically. Now, this ship, the Patria, is about to leave Haifa with 1,972 Jews when it was blown up in the harbour by the Haganah, the Jewish agency's military arm. Um, they wanted to prevent the ship from sailing, but the unfortunately the, the charge was, the, the, the explosive was more devastating than intended, and 250 Jews were killed. Nevertheless, the British commander-in-chief in the Middle East, General Wavell, sent a telegram to England that the survivors of the explosion must still be shipped out to Mauritius. And this general warns that if the survivors are allowed to stay in Palestine, it will be read in the Arab world that Jews have successfully challenged the decision of the white paper of the British government, which will gravely increase the prospect of widespread disorders in Palestine. Now, this tele telegram was seen by Churchill, who replied to it himself. And he wrote, and I quote, personally, I hold it would be an act of inhumanity unworthy of British name to force them to re-embark, and they were allowed to stay in Palestine. Another incident during the war uh, occurred in February 43. Churchill arrived in Algiers, which had just been won back from the Vichy French authorities uh, about three months earlier in North Africa, and Churchill is shocked to discover that the Vichy laws against the Jews of Algeria are still in force, even though it's now under Allied control. And in fact, I remember Sir Martin Gilbert telling me this whole episode uh, one Sunday afternoon in his house and showing me the letters that he had on the matter. And Churchill... Just mentioned casually that you knew him. 
I knew him, yes, yes, went to his house quite a number of times, uh, introduced to him through Rabbi Liss in Highgate. He was a member of his shul. But yes, uh, I even translated some Yiddish documents from a Sefer Yizka for him of uh, some towns in Ukraine. But anyway, um, (laughs) so Churchill finds out that, you know, the the, the Jews are still being treated by Vichy law, and he insisted that these laws are repealed at once, and it was done. Wow. What about the request to bomb Auschwitz? It's a very well-known... Okay, so this is the most famous of probably of the wartime issues connected to Churchill, the bombing of Auschwitz or of the train tracks. They're not necessarily the same thing. Not going to go into all the ins and outs, but there were three different elements to the requests for bombing. So, on 6th July 1944, Eden, the foreign minister, told Churchill of an appeal he has just received from Dr. Weitzman, asking the British government to do something to mitigate the appalling slaughter of Jews in Hungary. And Weitzman reported that 6,000 Jews were being gassed to death every day. Two days later, The Times published a report on Auschwitz-Birkenau, which noted that on the 15th of May, 62 railway carriages filled with Jewish children aged 2 to 8 had been sent to Auschwitz, and that every day since, six trainloads of Jews had been put to death in the gas chambers of that concentration camp. And Churchill as a result, responded emotionally to Eden. And he said, you know, is there any reason to raise these matters through the cabinet? You and I are in entire agreement. Get anything out of the Air Force you can and invoke me if necessary. This is a quote. Certainly appeal to Stalin. In other words, do it. And the truth is, we shouldn't be surprised at his reaction, because during the 1930s, Churchill's sense of humanity was already voiced regarding the the Nazi persecution of the Jews. Clement Attlee testified how one day he met Churchill in the House of Commons, and Churchill told him about what was being inflicted on the Jews, and he had tears pouring down his cheeks. And, you know, this sense of outrage never left him. Churchill would make repeated references to to different audiences, to it being the most horrible crime ever committed in history. And this is how generally Churchill is known of. And it's true. But there is an issue. The issue that they weren't actually bombed. So simply put, to what degree was this admirable sentiment of Churchill followed by any meaningful action. Now, the reason generally given is that the bureaucrats were able to thwart the will of even the most powerful prime minister in British history. But there actually is little to show that he subsequently pushed his ministers or pressed his officials to actually do something. It is also argued that the Air Force losses would have been too great, And it's argued that Churchill was too preoccupied with larger issues of uh, running the war because this is all a month since the D-Day invasion of 
France. I guess anyway you could say it isn't the job of a prime minister. He gives directives. He's right. So that all all the sort of part of the, the, the argument that's made. But these arguments are weakened by Churchill's strong involvement in another episode happening at exactly the same time. On the 1st of August, 44, the Polish Home Army rebelled against the Nazis. By then, the Soviets had already occupied half of Poland, Lublin, etc. And this uprising took place in Warsaw, principally. The British government made every effort to fly in to, uh, or fly in aid anyway, to the Polish revolt. The RAF was ordered to drop supplies on Warsaw, despite warnings that losses would be prohibitive and that the chances of the supplies reaching the Poles were minimal anyway. In fact, of 181 bombers which flew to Warsaw, 31 did not return. And on one day alone, 1,280 supply canisters were dropped and only 280 reached Polish hands. The rest fell to the Germans. And in all of this, Churchill took a personal interest. He followed the progress via the air ministry. He sent personal appeals to Stalin. And both the Auschwitz request and the Warsaw uprising occur not only at the same time, but in the same geographical area. So that at the very same time that British officials were explaining to the Jews that Allied planes didn't have the capacity to reach Auschwitz, the planes were actually flying just to the west of Krakow, virtually over Auschwitz itself on the way to Warsaw. Now, it's true that the Americans were in overall charge of the European theater of war and that the American government expressed zero sympathy or any level of interest in the Jews. So clearly Churchill was much more of a human being. Nevertheless, he never created a, an actual policy for it um, as he did for Warsaw, where there was almost no American involvement. He just gave this uh, idea of bombing Auschwitz the initial direction, but the idea died and so unfortunately did many Jews. Well, the picture you paint just seems very confusing with the tears running down the cheeks and the largest crime ever committed in history. And we know he had the ability to give direction, even if it might not have been his court's prime minister. And the fact that the planes were flying it does paint the picture that this could have been all a uh, some sort of an act. No, if no, it definitely was not an act. There's no question about it. And we saw, for instance, what he did in Algiers and what he did in Palestine. There was no question about the fact that he was on the side of the Jews. But in one way or another, there were other considerations which either took his time or took his focus or that he wanted to pick his battles. But, you know, ultimately, this can be considered a failure of his. That, I would say, is the way to view it. And the Jews in Britain at the time weren't rallying outside Downing Street, begging uh, I, him. I don't know how much this was known outside. It was published of in the Times, you mentioned. About Auschwitz, yes. but the idea of bombing Auschwitz was a much more select group. It came from Michal Weismandl via Switzerland. And remember, the Americans refused to do anything to the degree that the only way anything was accomplished in America was by publishing it in the press, because Roosevelt just basically and the State Department didn't care about Jewish life at all. Well. 
Now, in fact, in his book, uh, Sir Martin Gilbert writes that Churchill had been reluctant to meet Weitzman during the war and didn't. And in conversation with Christopher Soames, Churchill said that he had been reluctant because he found Weitzman so fascinating that he would spend too much of his time talking to him. And um, he was told, well, Weitzman gives a very different reason, actually, which Churchill asked, well, what is that reason? He said the reason you wouldn't see him was because for you, he was conscience. And Churchill was silent, which is, of course, very revealing. All in all, though, Winston Churchill was a remarkable leader whose support for the Jews is almost as inexplicable as his implausible rise to power in May 1940. I mean, Jewish history is marked by unlikely events, and it's difficult to view Churchill's strong support for the Jews as anything else. He was a political friend at a time where this was a real rarity in the UK. Also, having mentioned him, I will do so again. As Rabbi Liss said to me, Churchill refused to consider peace with the Germans in 1940 when many in the British government were in favour. The Jews in England would probably not have survived this quote-unquote peace treaty with the Nazis. So that's something to factor in. Yet, at the same time, Churchill was motivated by a position of policy, uh, which came first, which I guess is unsurprising. And did he have any involvement in uh, immigration of the Jews from Europe? Jews having a hard time to get into the UK? Yes. On a, You mean on a personal level? Gen- uh, I mean, generally yeah, speaking, he, he, he was in, but he was in opposition uh, during the 30s. He was only brought in in May 1940, when there was a war cabinet put together. So he was not in a position of authority during that entire decade, basically. Right. Okay, so I guess it's up to people to draw their own conclusions, but you've certainly drawn a picture. We still have some minutes left. Do we have any other prime ministers for tonight? Yes. First of all, the two prime ministers on either side of World War II are important. One oversaw the time when Jews were desperate to leave Germany because of Hitler, and the other was post-45, where Jews were desperate to leave Germany because of the war and the DP camps. And both groups wanted to get into British Palestine. So the question is, how did these two prime ministers fare? We'll start with the second. Clement Attlee led the government from mid-45 and through the years leading to the establishment of the State of Israel. It was under his premiership that his foreign secretary, Bevan, came out fighting strongly against the Haganah. He deported or interned any Jews trying to smuggle themselves into Palestine. He arrested leaders of the Jewish agency and he returned Jewish concentration camp survivors to Germany after the war. This is nevertheless. And Attlee not only condoned, but actively supported all these moves. And if we move into 1949, he's still PM. Britain's Labour government still refuses to recognise the existence of the State of Israel. Attlee and Bevan had basically been humiliated by a group of Jews who'd been determined to force Britain out of Palestine, and they couldn't shake off that bitterness towards Israel. And, of course, the British government didn't want to offend the Arab countries around Israel. Oil was never far from their minds. But what is not known and almost inexplicable is that Attlee looked after a child refugee 
a family that escaped from the Nazis in the months leading up to the Second World War. He was then the leader of the opposition, and he sponsored a Jewish mother and her two children to leave Germany in 39 and move to the UK. And Attlee invited one of the children into his home in Stanmore in northwest London. And it's not hearsay. Paul Willer was the child refugee. He's now in his 90s. He stayed with the Attlees for four months. His mother was a midwife, but rules prohibited midwives from keeping their own children in hospital accommodation. And so she needed somebody to take her child in for a short period of time. And this Mr. Willer told the press, you know, they took me inside what was a very large house. They had a maid and a cook, and they used to take cold baths every day. And at breakfast, we would gather around the table, and Mr. Attlee played this game where he held out a coin and asked whose monarch's head was on it. Whoever gave the correct answer was allowed to keep the coin. And on the 80th anniversary of the Kinder Transport program, Mr. Willer met um, Atlee's granddaughter. So, you know, go figure. Uh, it's unknown. It's bizarre. Do we have any reason why he did this? He never s spoke about it. Was never asked him in his lifetime? Just a random uh, refugee family? Don't know how much it was recorded in history till more recent times. Fascinating. Wow. Okay, and the Prime Minister before World before, War II? Uh, Neville Chamberlain. Infamously known for his policy of appeasement towards Hitler in the last couple of years before World War II. He is generally seen as having a spectacular lack of vision and understanding of international politics, which led to him allowing Hitler to take Austria, Czechoslovakia. But the simplistic view is somewhat inaccurate. History books tend to gloss over the fact that even on the 1st of September, when Hitler invaded Poland, Chamberlain held off declaring war for 48 hours. Now, you won't actually find this mentioned even on the internet unless you look at the government records for these two days in Parliament. On the 2nd of September, his statement to the House of Commons was so vague much more so than his cabinet had opted for, that it showed that the British government was still dithering. And in fact, after he spoke, the shock in the House of Commons of his statement was such that there was no sound when the Prime Minister sat down. You know, you didn't hear, 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 or any of this stuff. And many MPs concluded that the Prime Minister was actively seeking another shabby compromise, a, a second Munich, just like in September 38. So much so that when the Labour leader, Arthur Greenwood, he was the acting leader of the opposition, he stood up to reply from the opposition benches to Chamberlain's statement. A Conservative MP shouted out across a basically silent parliament, speak for England, meaning that a senior Conservative member of government had to appeal to the socialist opposition to save the nation's honour. Yeah, you can always understand his will not to have a second world war. Yes, but his failure arose from entrenched views um, that to forestall the threat of communism, concessions can be made to fascism. And his views were marked by the ability to overlook anti-Semitism because he disliked Jews. He said himself at a cabinet meeting in April 39 
six years after Hitler had already come to power. If we must offend one side in Palestine, let us offend the Jews rather than the Arabs. And in a letter to his sister in July 39, he writes, No doubt Jews aren't a lovable people. I don't care about them myself. His policy contained willful denial about dictatorship. In his own words, he was keen to connect with the human side of dictators. And so he failed not only as a leader, but on a moral level, too. Quite the contrast to his uh, predecessors. Yes. Anthony Eden, who we mentioned was the Foreign Secretary during the Second World War and was uh, PM in the mid-1950s. So Eden's private secretary noted about Eden in the 40s, Unfortunately, Eden is immovable on the subject of Palestine. He loves Arabs and hates Jews. But he became the first patron of the conservative Friends of Israel. How? The transformation from foreign office Arabist came about through his clash with Nasser and Arab uh, radicalism. So you just did Shovel. Like yes. That. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. And we will end with two more prime ministers, once again, both involved with Israel and at times of war, the Six Day War and the Yom Kippur War. Edward Heath, conservative prime minister from 1970 to 74, and therefore during the war, when Egypt and Syria attacked in 73, the prime minister imposed a complete ban on sale of arms to both sides, claiming this to be a policy of even handedness. Now, uh, this just meant Britain officially was neutral, but the arms embargo hit Israel much harder. And perhaps the most shameful decision was Britain's refusal to supply Israel with spare parts for weapons, including shells for centurion tanks that Britain had sold to the Jewish state. And all the while, Egyptian pilots were continued to be trained by Britain. Really, Heath wanted to appease the oil-producing Arab states and refused to condemn the aggression perpetrated against Israel. Right, This was an Arab attack. In fact, Britain urged a ceasefire, a return to the 67 borders, and refused to allow the U.S. to resupply Israel from British bases such as Cyprus. And Heath met staunch opposition within his own cabinet including his rival, um, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, But Heath was not to be persuaded by argument or by the suggestion that his position was politically unpopular, which was a claim he attributed to a Jewish-inspired press campaign. So he clearly is not just an anti-Zionist, but an anti-Semite to boot. So that's the second of the two. And the first, Harold Wilson. Prime Minister from 67 to 70 and from 74 to 76, a Labour leader. He was a staunch Zionist, which was rather unfashionable amongst the Labour left from whose ranks he came. He wrote a book called The Chariot of Israel, Britain, America and the State of Israel. And that was described by Wilson's Home Secretary, Roy Jenkins, as one of the most strongly Zionist tracts ever written by a non-Jew. And the hero was Balfour and the villain was Bevin, who Wilson had served with in Attlee's cabinet in 48. And in fact, when Israel faced potential annihilation in the Yom Kippur War, Wilson rushed 
to its side, lobbying Ted Heath, whom we just mentioned, to lift the arms embargo. And he insisted that the whole Labour Party vote that way. And when Roy Jenkins objected, he said, listen, I've accommodated your conscience for years. You're going to have to take account of mine. I feel as strongly about the Middle East as you do about the common market. And Wilson in the parliamentary debate said, listen, Israel is the only democracy in the region. And away from the public stage, Wilson used his close contacts with the Soviet leadership to try and improve the fate of Russian Jews. He refused on one occasion to join them at the Bolshoi, while two of its stars were denied exit visas. And when he left office in 76, his first overseas visit was to Israel, and he received an honorary doctorate. And one of his sharpest contemporary critics said, I don't think Harold Wilson had any doctrinal beliefs except for one, which I find utterly incomprehensible, his devotion to the cause of Israel. (laughs) Reminds me of that quote about Churchill before, similar. Yes, yes. And finally, Disraeli. We have done his life story in a previous podcast, I believe, now. Yes, the renegades. Not his life story, just one anecdote before we close. Queen Victoria said to Benjamin Disraeli, you were born a Jew, you forsook your great people, and now you are a member of the Church of England, but no one believes that you're a Christian at heart. Who and what are you? Your Majesty, Disraeli replied, I am the blank page between the Old Testament and the New. (laughs) Okay, so next week, two more Prime Ministers, one of which will need almost an entire podcast to introduce Jewish life in England in the 1700s. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hesh. I might be racking my brains for the opposite of predecessor. I believe it's successor. It is. (laughs) Thank you. I look forward to hear the other episodes next week and the week after thank you very much again and as usual any feedback comments reviews suggestions please do send to podcast at jd.org.uk and thank you for listening